This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. There is a misconception that if you're unemployed, it's probably because you're lazy or lack the skills that the job market requires. What about when employers purposely downsize to maximize profits? And what happens when technology becomes so advanced that most of us become unemployed? I'm Dasrid Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thanks for inviting me again. Thank you for coming on the show once again. Um, Jeffrey, usually when I think of the word unemployed, it, it, it means I don't have a job. Let's say if I don't have a job, I can say I'm unemployed. But as an economist, when I ask you, what is unemployment? How, how do you contextualize that? All right. I think that there are a number of different ways of looking at it uh, from an economics perspective, some of which are very close to what you've just said. Hmm. They're quite intuitive, which is, um, I'm simply not in paid work, right? And I'm, I'm not self-employed, so I'm. Uh, uh, but I'm available for work. That's really quite important, and I'm not able to find it. And so that generally is a, is quite a broad and intuitive way um, in which most people would understand the concept of uh, unemployment. Right. But for economists, we have there are two other I think important ways of thinking about it as economists, one is the sort of definition and the other is the statistical measure. Um, from a definitional perspective, economists go a little bit further than to say that um, I'm not in paid employment and therefore I'm unemployed. Um, we would say that you have to be available for work immediately. You have to be looking for work actively and unable to find work. And you have to be prepared to take any type of job, pretty much, um, at whatever wage is offered to you. And if you have those three definitions, that's a much more um, a precise way of defining uh, the difference between what we would call voluntary and involuntary unemployment. The involuntary aspect is that I'm available for work, but and I'm prepared to work now straight away, but I just can't find anyone uh, who's prepared to offer me a job and I'm prepared to take any salary. So how does unemployment affect the overall health of the economy? Well, unemployment is generally viewed as uh, not using the resources that we have available. One of, one of the primary resources that any economy has available to, uh, are the people and their skills and their time and their contribution. Um, and uh, having them occupied in productive activity producing goods and services, which then create what we call value added. And then this value added creates income, and then this income can be distributed across the population. It's then spent, and then this spending creates growth because the spending offers opportunities for businesses to invest. Um, so if you have um, a, a large number of people who are unemployed, they're not involved in productive activity, and then that will hold back. Um, economic uh, growth and economic development from an economics perspective. Um, it could also be that there's a talent loss. You know, you could have very, very talented people who are potentially extremely creative and they could be adding to the innovation capacity of the economy. 
but they're not able to find ways of using those talents and using those skills. And so the innovation capacity of the economy is also helpful that. So that's an, a, a slightly different way, more holistic way of looking at the impact from an economics perspective. But most often we view it in terms of income, income distribution, wealth, investment, economic growth is all held back when people are unemployed. Right. Um, let's also look at it from a very micro level. What are some ways in which unemployment can impact individual households and communities? At an individual level, it's, it's often primarily the loss of income and the absence of uh, um, a way of making ends meet. It's, it's as simple as that. I mean, that's the, one of the primary ways that people make, uh, make an income is through being employed, of course. But actually, if you think in Malaysia, it, um, if you look at the, um, the total labor force of about 16 million, um, amongst that, it's only about 9 million people who actually earn a wage. So it's not as, uh, being employed is not as definitive in terms of creating income as you might think in the labor, uh, sorry, in the labor market in Malaysia, strangely. But of course, for individuals, it, uh, being employed is one of the primary ways in which we can, um, we can uh, get, have an income. And so the, being unemployed is associated, of course, with that lost income that leads to poverty and lost opportunities. And as the, if, you know, if the unemployment is long term and if it, or, or if it, you're in continued periods of unemployment over a very long uh, period of time, it can be associated and it is associated with um, personal issues such as health problems, mental health problems. It can also affect relationships because it's difficult to form stable relationships um, if you don't have the income to do that, not because the relationship is, is material or income-based. Right. It's, it's just that it is very difficult, for example, to think about getting married and having children and um, if, you, if you don't have the material resources to do that. And that affects individuals really quite harshly if the periods of unemployment are uh, long-term. The mental health issues, in my view, are, are particularly acute in many instances because being employed is not just a question of income, as I mentioned a moment ago. It's also a question of your social status and your social involvement, your social engagement. Um, many of the things that we do, which you, you know, help us in terms of social engagement, cost money. And if we don't have the money and the resources to do that, then um, it does lead to social isolation on an individual basis. And that can be really quite crushing in many instances. And how do you contextualize the rate of unemployment versus underemployment in Malaysia? All right. Well, actually, this issue of the Malaysian context is quite interesting mm. uh, related to what I mentioned before about the definition, how economists define unemployment. The definition of unemployment in Malaysia is actually very precise and it's very limited. So we have those things that, you know, you're looking for a job, you can't find a job, you're available for work and you're not too choosy about the salary. Uh, we have all of those. But um, un unemployment in Malaysia is defined such that if you worked during the previous week before they collected the statistics, even if you worked for a single hour during that, during that time, you wouldn't be considered unemployed because uh, you will have had some form of paid employment. Right. So even if the paid employment is very um, limited, let's say you just work a few hours during the previous week, um, you wouldn't 
be considered unemployed in terms of the statistical definition of it. And that's why in Malaysia we have such a very low level of measured um, unemployment. It's about 600,000 at the moment. It has come down. I mean, during the lockdown, it was much higher. And it has uh, you know, quite recently come down to about 3.6%. Uh, so it, uh, often we hear that unemployment in Malaysia is very low and that Malaysia has a full employment environment. But the truth of it is that the biggest issue that we have in Malaysia is not so much unemployment, it is underemployment. So if we look at unemployment, it's about 600,000 people. If we look at underemployment, it's more than 2 million people. So if we have a labor force of 16 million people, you have 2 million of those people who are unemployed and underemployed. And what that means is instead of looking at unemployment as less than 4%, around 3% and saying the entire population is fully employed, actually, um, it's very much higher than that. It's, it's anywhere between 15 and 20 percent. Depend. I mean, it goes up and down because of um, you know the economic cycle. During the lockdown period and during the period after that, it was above 20 percent of, of, of the labor force was uh, either unemployed or underemployed. And so it really is this issue of underemployment, which is the problem in Malaysia. We have two types of underemployment. One is called time-related underemployment. You're working very many fewer hours than uh, you are prepared to work. And the second is called skills-related uh, underemployment. And skills-related underemployment is actually very large. It's, it's just under 2 million people. It's 1.9 million people. And it's very persistent. And what skills-related underemployment is about is that you have qualifications, you have experience, and you have skills, but you're doing a job that doesn't require those things. And of course, this is particularly acute amongst graduates and school leavers and uh, younger people. It's very uh, skills-related underemployment is very much a problem in that age in that age group. For example, we have more than four million graduates in Malaysia, but we have only two million jobs that require a graduate qualification. And this is why we have basically the difference is two, two million, basically the difference between those two. Right. And so when we talk about the skills mismatch being the cause of un unemployment in Malaysia, people often think that's because uh, people are not skilled enough. That you, and, then, and so they say, oh, you need to go into training, <laughs> and we need to have more training programs and all of this. Actually, the truth is, that the skills uh, that they have, the skills and the qualifications that they have are higher than the jobs uh, required, the jobs that are available required. That's the, the mismatch problem. And it's uh, completely misunderstood in the discussion on unemployment in Malaysia. And therefore, it's misunderstood in terms of the policy response. What would you say are the main causes of unemployment in an economy, regardless whether it's Malaysia or other countries? Okay, as normal, there are many different uh, explanations and uh, unemployment is, is fascinating for that reason because it's caused by many different things. There isn't a single cause. Um, when I was at university, my professor, Patrick Minford, wrote a book and he, it was called Unemployment, Cause and Cure. And he basically advocated that the primary reason for unemployment was the question of wages which was that um, people who uh, were unemployed were not prepared to accept the wage that was being offered to them. 
And there were also many reasons why the wage wouldn't come down to that level, or, 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 or also why they wouldn't, uh, sorry, employers wouldn't raise the wage to the level that would uh, encourage people to take the job. Right. In economics, we have we have something called a reservation wage. And a reservation wage, basically, put, put in simple terms, is the minimum amount of um, money I have to be paid in order to give my time to an employer. And we are, sometimes we call this the opportunity cost. You know, my time is my resource. It's valuable to me. And there are many reasons that determine what the reservation wage would be. But that's, uh, but the, you know, the, the question of why, why would people be unemployed? It would be that the reservation wage was higher than the employers were prepared to offer. And that's one of the causes we, of unemployment we have in Malaysia, but that leads to underemployment because um, often people don't have any option but to take whatever is available to them. So if you were a graduate, of course you would want a higher wage, but you're not able to find the high wage. And so you have to take uh, the lower wage. So that's why we have underemployment rather than unemployment. So the first explanation for unemployment is a wage issue. It's a, it's a, a the labor market is not um, coming into equilibrium because the wage is not moving in order to meet each other. Another is cyclical unemployment. That is to say that as the economy expands or the economy contracts, Companies want to hire more or fewer people related to the business environment that, that, that they are facing. Right. The cyclical unemployment tends to come and ten, tends to go. Um, if it doesn't go away, it turns into structural unemployment, and then structural unemployment becomes a big problem. Right. When you mention cyclical uh, unemployment, are you also talking about um, this thing called the natural rate of unemployment? Because some economists have argued that some level of unemployment is considered natural and perhaps even necessary for our current economic model to function. How do you see it? Yes. In every economy, there will always be uh, an amount of unemployment because people will be naturally moving between jobs. Sometimes we call this frictional unemployment. That is the time it takes from leaving one job to joining another. Actually, in many instances, we don't see too much frictional unemployment because people tend not to leave one job until they've found another job. But sometimes they do. I mean, if you know, company closes down or the job becomes so terrible that they can't be bothered to, you know, they just can't uh, tolerate it anymore. But that's relatively little. But the idea of na the natural rate or the full, in full employment rate is basically the rate of unemployment where we have stable inflation. That, that's how we define it. And stable inflation is an indicator of a stable economy. So the economy would be growing at a, 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 a sort of normal, sustainable underlying growth rate. Inflation, inflation would be stable, so prices wouldn't be being pushed up too much. Um, and then the unemployment that we were seeing would be primarily the natural component of a, a healthy labor market of people moving between one job and another job. And often we, we you know, the, the general rule of thumb is that that is around 4% 4, 4 or less. So when we look at unemployment in Malaysia at 3.6%, sometimes people say that's full employment. But as we've just discussed, it disguises the underemployment, the hidden unemployment.
On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. After the break, we discuss technology and unemployment. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan. And on the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. And we're talking about unemployment. So, Jeffrey, you know, like you mentioned, like that the whole natural rate is, it talks about, you know, this this whole idea is that that period where you're shifting from one work to a, one job to another, um, it's, it's perhaps temporary outcomes due to market fluctuations or, or market readjusting itself. Um, you know, that happens very frequently. But... How then would you explain, um, you know, whenever there's a crisis or, or, or opportunity, some, you know, employers seek to maximise profit by minimising labour costs, which then results in job cuts, layoffs, um, surplus in unemployed workers, which even without the recent pandemic seems to happen periodically every 10 years or so? We do see economic cycles. Mm. That, that's for sure. Right? But uh, actually... Taking aside the last the last pandemic period, and then taking aside the um, the crisis we had in two thousand eight, you know, which led to what we call the great uh, the great recession and extended recession. Uh, prior to that, we had a very long extended period um, of sustained economic growth when we didn't really see very much in terms of cyclical uh, unemployment. But we've seen more of it uh, more more recently, of course. But this issue of the creation of unemployment um, because of the, 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 the interaction between employers and their employees is a real issue. Uh, because what it means, as you quite rightly pointed out, is that where there is a downturn in the activities or the sales of a particular company, one of the first things they do is to cut salaries. And then if that's not saving them money, they will cut jobs. But also the cutting of salaries or the terms and conditions of employment will also make people leave of their own accord. Um, and what that means is that there is an imbalance, a very serious imbalance uh, between the power of the employer and the power of the employee, because the employee is often given a take it or leave it offer by the employer, which is this is the salary and you, 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 know, you take it, otherwise you find a job somewhere else. And they don't really have much um, bargaining power, except to leave. And so that means that you see unemployment for two reasons. One is that the employer is reducing the labor force in order to save costs. Another is that the employer is tightening the terms and conditions and the wages of the uh, employees and they leave of their own accord because it is a take it or leave it situation. And um, that does lead to unemployment uh, for individuals and for groups of individuals. Now, where that is happening systemically across many employers across the economy, then it's a structural issue. Otherwise, it's an issue for individual companies, right. for individual sectors. But when you see that across many companies and across many sectors, it becomes a structural issue. So how do you see balancing these power imbalances? Um, is it a case of, um, you know, let's say, um, stronger government intervention? Or is it a case of unionization or something else entirely? The power imbalances can be solved by the market. 
if there are in uh if, if there is a strong um legal framework that people can use in order to protect their employment rights um, if you don't have that then the market cannot function properly because the market requires as a prerequisite to any properly functioning market you need a properly functioning legal system where people's rights can be quickly and easily and cheaply enforced and if you don't have that then you have a structural problem in in the labor market of course if you had stronger trade unions then they would be able to collectivize across many many this is the issue of course with employment you're talking about many hundreds thousands for a particular company and across the economy as a whole you're talking about millions of people so you have a coordination problem if millions of people want to go and renegotiate their salaries or renegotiate their terms and conditions of employment, and that becomes a problem. If you have collectivization and unions um, that can help to protect um, employment. Uh, in, in some countries, it's not possible for you to, uh, to do the thing that you have just mentioned, which is to <laughs> reduce your costs by sacking your workers. So workers have protection. Um, in other countries, workers don't have any protection at all. So that could be part of um, the solution. The question of government intervention, in my view, doesn't really help that because if the government had to, if the government intervened to give us the proper laws, and if the government intervened to give us an effective labor court system, and if the government intervened to allow trade unions more scope, then you, you wouldn't have these problems. Uh, to, to the same extent, to the same extent. But if uh, there, there isn't really much that the government can, can do in order to force employers to keep employing um, people that they can't afford to pay because these are private companies. The only alternative would, would be for the government to employ people in the public sector. And what we tend to see, of course, is that public sector jobs are, they tend not to be productive. Jobs. They, I mean, they, they tend to be bureaucratic, bureaucratic jobs. Um, they, I mean, here in Malaysia, of course, the government can and is and does ask the GLCs to employ more people. Uh, certainly during the lockdown, and one of the schemes that they used was a, um, a scheme to have the GLCs and the government sector employ more people. It can do that, but these tend not to be um, long-term jobs. They not, tend not to be what one might call real jobs. They are creating employment for the purpose of giving people a salary, which in itself does have a positive effect because if they have a salary, they go and spend it and they are active. So it does have that positive effect, um, but it really is an intervention which isn't sustainable in the long term because it doesn't um, it doesn't add value that justifies itself as a, as an economic activity. It's a bureaucratic um, response. So. Uh, there is relatively little that the government can do except to introduce better systems within the labour market for employers and employees to regulate their own terms and conditions of employment. Because more employment is actually created through a vibrant and agile supply side, through companies being successful and because of that success investing and because of that investment growing and because of that growth needing to employ more people. That's how you create sustainable employment. Another important aspect that has been part of the um, you know, unemployment um, discourse, um, especially in recent years, is the whole idea of technological advancement. 
Jeffrey, what role do you think technological advancement plays in the rate of unemployment? And how do you think it's going to you know, play a part in, in, as the years progress? Okay, so in the past, technology has been extremely positive in terms of uh, employment because it's generally speaking, it's been what we call uh, labor augmenting technology. That means that you don't actually sack people and replace them with the technology. You give people technology which helps them to improve their productivity. So their work becomes more productive. And so it's value adding. And so it's certainly true that the advance of technologies, you know, even going all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, all the way through, the advance of technology has had the effect of improving overall productivity that has created economic growth, that has created more employment opportunities. It is true that in some instances, the technology has replaced or displaced some types of jobs. But generally speaking, these people have moved from one type of activity to another type of activity, rather than being completely set out of the, the labor market. And that's been the, 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 the main impetus of technology in the past. And that's why techn technology um, is very positive from an economic growth perspective and also an employment perspective and a standard of living and quality of life perspective in the past. Now, under the so-called fourth industrial revolution technologies, we are seeing something very different. What we are seeing is technology which is specifically designed to replace people. Uh, that's the purpose of the technology. And that, that's new. That's what makes uh, fourth industrial revolution technology different to how it's been in the past. And we still haven't um, come to the, the position where we are uh, acknowledging that this technology you know, this fourth industrial revolution technology is not going away. We're only going to have more of it. And it's only going to replace many types of jobs. That's what it's going to do. And so we have to then think about what are we going to do with the people who don't have these jobs anymore? Right. And whereas in the past, the technology tends to replace um, low skilled types of work. Now, as we know, the fourth industrial technology um, is um, replacing highly skilled workers, uh, not just middle income people, but high income people too. It's, in, it's replacing doctors and nurses and right. um, uh, lawyers and accountants and, and all of this sort of thing. <laughs> so these are the middle income people. And um, what is likely to happen, and even, you know, even people like Elon Musk and, and guys like that, uh, uh, myself and my colleague Paolo Casadillo also did a report for a government agency on technology and we pointed out exactly the same thing, that this technology is going to take away whole swathes of employment and we need to have some strategy to ask the question of what are we going to do. So let's say we called it in the limit. Let's say in the limit we had all of the technologies that we could have and it replaced all of the possibilities um, that were available you might see 80% of all jobs being replaced in the limit. We're not there now. You know, the estimates right. um, are, are much less than that. It's like, I'm not going to be alarmist, <laughs> but if, you know, 20, 30 years down the road, we might, we might get to some sort of decision. And then you would have to ask the question, what are we going to do? How are we going to earn a living? How are we going to um, add value uh, or, you know, be part of productive activities? How are we going to do that? And I don't think that we're spending any 
anywhere near as as much time as we need to in order to um, to address that problem. Just uh, recently, a, a lawyer posted on Twitter, you know, that he just got ChatGPT and. Mind you, ChatGPT is still in its sort of baby stages, you know, that that sort of thing. And he said he just got ChatGPT to do something that he's otherwise would ask a junior lawyer, his junior lawyer to do. And he said ChatGPT in two seconds could produce something that is 60% accurate. So it's exactly what you said, right? And and it's obviously not going to be like tomorrow, 80% of the people are going to lose their jobs. Like you said, let's not be alarmist. But we are heading in that direction and we are seeing it already. But Jeffrey, this is only a problem. Problem if the ownership of technology is concentrated in the hands of a few, right? Like billionaires within this, this capitalistic model that sort of encourages um, wealth concentration, profit maximization at all costs, um, and, and so on and so forth. But what if all of this technology is publicly owned? Then growth would the, the growth of these technologies would just mean if not a UBI at least universal basic services. It could mean fewer work days. The way I'm looking at it is if there is a way for us to publicly own this technology and the technology can do all of the work that we can do, then we can spend more time with our families, doing gardening, reading the books that we've you know, bought but never had the time to read, go and watch the movies that we never had the time to watch, so on and so forth. We could still live productive, fulfilling lives without having to worry about salaries. Yes, I mean that is um, a perspective. I mean, who said who said that your life should be, you know, you're born, you go to school, you work, you retire, you die, and right. that's it. Who said who said that? You know, I mean, what? But what that means is that we need to have a different perspective on how we spend our time and how, particularly how we earn our income. And now, of course, you know, there is this um, this view from the World Economic Forum that uh, you will own nothing, but you will be happy. because all of these things will be provided as you mentioned universally or socially or or so on now if if that is possible um then there is some sort of equilibrium in which we could have a better work-life balance and we could have more choices and and that would be a better outcome but then the question arises about the ownership of these technologies and where these technologies come from one of the reasons we have these technologies is because we don't have government intervention because they have come through private enterprise private creativity the um the the sort of curiosity of of scientists and programmers and and people in the private sector and you wouldn't have that so much uh, in the public sector that's number that's number one and number two it, it would it then changes and shifts the question of the control of the state if the state owns all of these things, how do we as private individuals or how do we as members of society control the state? So that also has broader um, um, political economy questions about the control of the state and the control of the resources. It presupposes that the control of these resources by private individuals is worse than the control of these resources by the state. And that's a big question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge, huge question. And it's not a new question, because although we think now about that in the context of these new technologies, people have, of course, in the past, had exactly the same debate in respect of te- earlier technologies. Right. You know, the idea that all, all technologies and all productive activities should be state-owned and then distributed uh, across people in a sort of egalitarian way versus the idea that actually 
private ownership of these technologies and these capital um, uh, and capital has been much more effective. So that's a very big, um, <clears throat> it's a very big debate. And it's a debate I think we need to have because uh, it is becoming more real. And this concentration of these technologies is becoming uh, very much more concentrated than it was before. So if you think about technologies in the 19th century, in the 20th century, there, let's say cars, if you were to look at the car industry, I mean, clearly um, the, the car companies had patents over particular engines and particular car types and all of that. But there were very, very many car companies. Even in an individual country, there were very many people who owned that technology or developed that right. technology by themselves. What we're seeing with this new type of fourth industrial revolution technology, AI technology, is that the people who are creating it and owning it are very few. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that it is highly concentrated in um, specific uh, companies and specific individuals, some of whom we don't know about, by the way. Uh, that's, a, that's a separate issue, but uh, it, it, the concentration this time is rather um, is rather different. And that is something which is of concern to both people, no, to people from, a, from a, a more social perspective in terms of um, social market or socialist market um, approaches. And it is of concern to people from a capitalist and a free market perspective, because what you're talking about there is monopolization. And that form of monopolization, in this case, you know, we're talking about the monopolization of technology raises all manner of problems, not just economic problems, but also social problems, uh, political problems, uh, and questions of human rights and human freedoms, which are common to everybody on the left and on the right. And just like this question of what are we going to do? Uh, how are we going to make a living when everything's being automated? What is, how are we going to deal with a new way of looking at the work-life balance? We also need to look at how can both the left and the right, in terms of the economics, the political economy of this, understand the monopolization of these technologies and how that needs to be handled. That is a, a huge issue that we need to spend a lot of time on. And we're not spending time on that. Because I think part of the reason we're not spending time on that is it's coming very, very, very quickly. I mean, chat uh, GPT wasn't here in January or... <laughs> right, just a few months ago, yeah. exactly. So, no, from, me, from my perspective, I, I don't think I had heard about this from my perspective in January. So it is, you know, it's some, it's coming very, very quickly and it's developing very, very quickly too. And this is one of the reasons where the technology and the ownership and the monopolization is overtaking the capacity of um, society, uh, political organization, governments to understand the implications of it. And that, that is a potential uh, problem that we have to face. Absolutely. And and I, I couldn't agree more that we need to be having more of these discussions ASAP, right, on a very global level. We need world leaders to be having these discussions because at the rate the technological revolution is happening, it feels like within our lifetime, we are seeing that, you know, it's either like we discussed, we could have, you know, higher salaries, fewer work days, so on and so forth, perhaps universal basic services, you know, and, and things like that. Or we could become some sort of Blade Runner 2049 type of situation where you have perhaps 10 to 
percent of the population with access to all the the goods and and so on and so forth. Everybody else, you know, just living paycheck to paycheck, struggling to get jobs and so on and so forth. So I think serious conversations need to be happening. Um, Jeffrey, so with all of that in mind, how do you prevent unemployment? Well, in in some instances, unemployment uh, is, as we've mentioned, it is a normal part of labor market activity. So it isn't so much the question of how do we prevent unemployment completely, but how how do we uh, prevent the uh, to too much unemployment? How do we prevent long-term unemployment? Um, because, I mean, if you look in Malaysia, most unemployment uh, lasts for less than three months. So the majority of people are unemployed for only a short term. How do we prevent it from becoming structural? How do we prevent it from having these um, individual costs and these social costs? Um, uh, and the answer, the, the answer to that is that we need to create a, a properly functioning labor market. And if we have a properly functioning labor market, which also incorporates issues such as social justice and fair treatment and balance of power uh, between um, employers and employees guaranteed through a properly functioning legal system, this is one of the most successful ways um, of solving unemployment from a, 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 a structural and sustainable in a perspective. Of course, for short-term unemployment, you can solve it by having the government hire people. Uh, but these are short-term issues. Uh, in order to get, um, uh, you know, it, in order to move toward this a full employment, natural rate on employment, where the only unemployment we see is voluntary or frictional. To get to that, you need to have a much more effective um, market, labor market. And what that means, it's not an unregulated labor market. Right. I mean, this is the this is a very important point. I think we've had this discussion before, which is that um, if you say, I want the market to solve it, it's not a question of having anarchy and saying, you know, just let people choose and let people do it as they wish. That's not the point. To have a properly functioning market, you need to have a properly functioning legal system, which involves laws, but it also involves a sense of justice and it involves a sense of social justice so that people wouldn't push themselves into the courts. <laughs> you would solve these problems earlier before having to rely on your GPT chatbox lawyer <laughs> to solve it when you take it to the industrial court. So, it's a sense of there being uh, a legal system, but an, an acceptance, a sort of social contract uh, about what is fair and what is not fair in employment and what you can and what you can't do as an employer and an employee. And all of that, to me, is part of the discussion that helps to um, build a properly functioning labor market, which um, we don't have, I'm afraid, uh, here in Malaysia. So um, that's one of the reasons why we uh, we are suffering not, as I mentioned before, with unemployment in Malaysia, but with under uh, underemployment. That's the big issue. And that will get worse, of course, when we are having um, more and more of these automated um, uh, job types. It, it will get it will get worse unless we start to have that uh, debate now. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought a, a fully functioning labour market when, and you emphasise the need to have even, you know, laws in place that will then, pro- uh, you know, protect the rights of, of employees and workers and so on and so forth. Because, you know, some people tend to suggest that you should just leave 
everything, you know, leave markets to their own devices. But, you know, that will only lead to lower wages, poorer working conditions and in general underemployment as well, right? Where people are not paid what they should or you get engineering degrees holders who are drive, you know, working as e-hailing drivers like you, you mentioned earlier. Would you agree with that? Uh, well, I think that the you know the perspective that you do need to have a properly functioning legal system in order as a prerequisite mm-hmm. to a market true of the labour market, just as it's true of anything else. I mean, if I bought products, you know, if I went to the market and bought apples and they were spoiled, <laughs> I would expect to be able to have a remedy to that. Right? <laughs> but the, the social remedy would be very simple: is the guy would just replace the apples, and we wouldn't have much of a we wouldn't have much of a struggle there. We would just replace the product. So if you view that in in the context of buying or selling products and services more generally, of course, is it doesn't appear to me to be rather it doesn't appear to me to be difficult to say we should have a similar uh, social acceptance of what is right and what is wrong when we're selling our time or selling our skills um, in in the labour market. So that to me is really much. Um, uh, this is a very important part of a properly functioning labour market. So you have to remember that. Um, the owners of companies can't produce anything at all without their employees. And therefore, their employees are very much a part of what their business is. And if they're prepared to spend a lot of time and effort looking after their their big flash cars and their machines and their buildings, why are they not prepared to spend a similar amount of time and effort looking after one of the other most important aspects of their company, which is their people? Absolutely. So that's a change in the mindset of the employer. And uh, I'm very much of the view that some of the employers have a terrible mindset in terms of treatment of employees. They view employees as hire and fire, take, take it or leave it, master and servant. And uh, this is not helpful, in my view, uh, not just in terms of employment and unemployment, but also, of course, in terms of salary and wages and terms and conditions of employment. And um, if we had a, a better, more, a better, properly functioning labour market that would uh, improve productivity, improve innovation, and improve economic growth, it would improve inequality, and it would improve the overall prospects for the economy. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. That was Dr. Jeffrey William, economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.